Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have an interview with Dr. Matt Siebold. Dr. Siebold is on the faculty at Elmira College and is the editor-in-chief of the MarkTwainStudies.org site associated with the Center for Mark Twain Studies. He earned his Ph.D., from the University of California, Irvine in 2012, after which he worked at the University of Alabama. He teaches courses on all periods of American literature, as well as interdisciplinary courses on mass media economics. Today, we're going to talk about all things Mark Twain in California. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, so Dr. Siebold, um, one of my favorite uh, Mark Twain books, and there, you know, it's hard to choose. It's like choosing between children, um, is probably roughing it just because of my interest in the West and um, his humor in the book. I think is is pretty unparalleled. I mean, uh, all of his books uh, have kind of that dark, uh, melancholy humor throughout, but this, in particular, there's something about roughing it uh, that really speaks to me and and my interests. Um, and um, it's an interesting story because it really brings you into the experience of going West. Um, can you start us today in our conversation about Mark Twain by talking about uh, where that book came from and a little bit about the journey that uh, Mark Twain uh, set out uh, going West? Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're, you're not alone in having a real fondness for that book and specifically for the kind of humor, which is a little different even from Twain's later style. You know, people who come to Twain through Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Puddinghead Wilson, you know, some of the things that are more commonly associated with secondary and higher education. Uh, you know, the, the style of roughing and the humor in roughing it is very different. And, and in some ways, it is this sort of mature document of the first phase of Twain's career. Right, that he he writes it as he is transitioning from being uh, a humorist, a newspaper man, a journalist, uh, a stage comic into somebody who has an aspiration to be a man of letters. Right. But uh, but it's about the period in his time that was most, or the period in his career, which was most precarious right? and where he learned the uh, the variety of different techniques he had for both uh, both literature in general and specifically humor. And so in some ways it is the you know, the the best representation of that first phase of Twain's career. And it covers a lot of the, the time he spent in that phase, right? It, it begins with his exodus from the Mississippi River Valley, right? He gets, sort of gets kicked off the river because of the Civil War. Uh, and he decides with his brother to head west. And they uh, they travel the over, uh, on the Overland Stagecoach, which uh, more or less directly follows the route that is now occupied by Amtrak's California Zephyr, right? And so through Iowa, through Colorado, uh, through Nevada, into California, passing through places like 
uh, Salt Lake City and Sacramento uh, along the uh, edge of it, Lake Tahoe, et cetera. So that's, uh, you know, the first part of the book is about the decision to go west, about the, the escapade and the travel. Uh, and then we get into the period that he spent in the west, both in Nevada and California, uh, a period of you know, not quite 10 10 years, right? Uh, uh, roughly from 1861 to about 1867. Uh, and uh, he's, you know, he spends a lot of that time in Nevada as a miner, and then starting as an editor and journalist, uh, but always kind of going back and forth between mining encampments in uh, Nevada and California and the bigger cities, specifically Virginia City and San Francisco. Yeah. What uh, what picture do we get uh, about the West and of the West from his work? And what what uh, what kind of vision of the mining camps uh, does he give us and 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 mining itself? There's been a lot of uh, great scholarship on uh, mining and, uh, you know, how how diverse these camps were and how often violent they were. What's the picture that we get from Twain and uh, how, you know, quote unquote accurate do you think it is? Yeah, I think it's a, that's a really complicated question because of course Twain in particularly in this time is a uh, is a journalist which in Twain's time does not necessarily mean uh, being dedicated to you know fair unbiased objective you know facts right uh, journalism is very very much an entertainment product then as it is now arguably uh, and he's also self-consciously a burlesque humorist right somebody who is using forms of uh, hyperbole oftentimes to 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 produce humor and, and to get his point across so, uh, and he's emerging as a kind of mature satirist that he will become later in his career. So, of course, there are, as he oftentimes points out, reflecting back on the period, there are a lot of lies in his work. And even in Roughing It, he talks about the extent to which exaggeration is part of the trade, right? And so it is a really complicated question as to how much of what he tells us in Roughing It is, uh, you know, is exactly what happened to him. Some of it we can back up with his private writings, his journals, his letters to his family, uh, and, and then with other types of historical documentation. So it's certainly not, uh, you know, created whole cloth, but there are also definitely moments where he, uh, you know, he may be exaggerating. One example that I can call easily to mind because uh, it was a paper that uh, scholar Kerry Driscoll gave at a recent conference was he uh, he he gets a lot of humor out out of the idea that the mining encampments are almost exclusively male right and he has some funny passages about women passing through the camp and the kind of stir that would be created by anybody uh, and uh, Driscoll did some research about that and found that actually there were quite a few women in these encampments right that this was not uh, it was not an all male society as it is sometimes romanticized to be. And sometimes Twain was both playing with those myths. Sometimes he was debunking those myths. He certainly, he, uh, he does a lot of playing with the reputation for violence in these mining communities, oftentimes exaggerating it to a degree that makes it you recognize that he is actually sort of poking fun at the idea that this is a completely uncivilized place. 
Um, and then other times he definitely, as you mentioned, the, the diversity of these places, there are times when he gets very serious about the extent to which particularly uh, Chinese laborers and Chinese miners are mistreated. Uh, and that's even more so when he gets to, to San Francisco, right? But there is a, a certainly there are times in Roughing It and in Twain's work throughout this period where he's drawing, trying to draw attention to real problems and problems that are not being widely represented. And so there is, you know, it's a very complicated question. There's sometimes when Twain is telling very hard truths and there are other times when he is playing with mythologies. Um, and I, I think Roughing It specifically is an example of Twain's to a certain degree, getting frustrated with American mythologizing of the West. And so a lot of what's happening in that book is him looking back at how this, you know, the frontier was marketed to a population of settlers that the nation needed to perform the acts of settler colonialism. Uh, and and he's, uh, he's definitely interrogating and sometimes debunking that myth, but he's also wrapped up in it himself. And he's always going to portray himself as a kind of naive and incompetent narrator right, who is as much a victim of the myth as he is a perpetuator of it. Yeah, and I, I think I brought that up because um, a lot of us that come to Mark Twain come from the Huckleberry Finn, Tom mm -hmm. Sawyer background. And then when we engage with this text um, that kind of blurs genre lines, it can, it can be a little hard to know how to read it, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I and so I I think that's the challenge is is uh, is how how to classify it and because your classification will dictate uh, how you think about it. So how do you where I mean we, you've kind of touched on this, but I want to get more direct now. How do you classify this work? Yeah, so most often it is a, a classified as a travel book, right? And part of the reason why it's inaccessible to us now is that that is a genre that has pretty much disappeared because specifically in the 20th century, as we had the emergence of things like cinema and television uh, and, you know, uh, high quality, glossy photography, the desire for the travel book, the market for the travel book died away. But this was an incredibly popular genre uh, throughout Twain's early life, especially. And so uh, roughing it is to, in many ways, trying to do what travel literature of that period does, which is bring an audience uh, you know, of readers, many of whom will never venture more than 50 miles from where they are born uh, to places all over the world. And Twain, uh, you know, Twain does this certainly with his first big success, The Innocents Abroad. He does it again with Roughing It. He, he publishes about five travel books over the course of his life. But he is always also satiring that genre, right? And so he he's very good at doing a lot of the things that travel literature always does, right? Describe the landscape, you know, uh, anecdotes about the people he meets, so on and so forth. But he also likes to poke fun at the, at the, tra at the travel writer. 
um, and the kind of pretensions they have about being, you know, being able to sort of universalize and judge a place and its people just by traveling through it. And so he he pokes fun at himself, and by doing so, is often put times poking fun at this larger community of travel writers who, you know, take you know, take a lot of liberties in presenting themselves as perhaps having more expertise than they actually have. And so that's one way, one way to think about the genre is certainly through travel fiction. The other, I think, that's important specifically to the history of California is this sort of bohemian journalist, uh, journalistic style that is emerging out of places like Virginia City and San Francisco, specifically during the 1860s, right? And that this, that what you you say that it's it's hard. This is sort of a miscellany, right? It's hard to know how to read it because there's a lot of things going on. That's definitely characteristic of that community of writers. Uh, that they that the newspaper becomes this vehicle, this medium for doing all sorts of work: poetry, memoir, uh, you know, humor of various kinds. Right? Uh, um, and then reportage, of course, right? Uh, and so there's all these different genres, oftentimes that are being sort of fused together and played with uh, by these sort of bohemian journalists who don't take themselves particular se particularly seriously, right? And don't take the work of the newspaper particularly seriously, at least in the terms that we would now associate with something like, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post, right? That they, this is not, they do not think of themselves as the sort of official record of the nation, right? This is, this is fun, right? This is a medium that is designed for information and entertainment and maybe a little bit more of the latter than the former, right? And so I think a lot of things, a lot of styles are being played with in that community. And I think that becomes part of Twain's work as well, right? That it, especially his early work, that there isn't necessarily an idea of sort of coherence or consistency, but rather how do you take each episode and build a kind of a, a genre, a style to fit what you're trying to, how you're trying to make people laugh oftentimes, what you're trying to get out of the reader. Yeah, I'm thinking about this in context of the visual arts for a second, because that's what I'm uh, kind of pivoting to right now in the podcast and talking about, um, you know, culture in, in the history of California. And I'm thinking about a lot of the art uh, that was created to uh, push people west and how it created images of the west um, mm -hmm. that sometimes weren't accurate or often weren't accurate, um, and particularly around indigenous people and how they were portrayed in art. Um, that both justified violence and justified uh, certain things, uh, creating certain images of, of, of people. And um, it seems like Twain's book kind of, I don't want to say stands alone, but is, is unique in that um, it doesn't feel like a purely propaganda piece in his, mm -hmm. in his satire. Um, and it gives us a, a picture of the West that is nuanced, which I think is what makes it distinctive. Yeah, and I, I would say it is attentive to the making of propaganda, and that's one of the things that I find most interesting about it in retrospect, is that whether he was aware of it at the time or whether he only became aware of it as he gets a little distance from his experience, he recognizes the extent to which the mythology of the frontier, the mythology of the West is uh, you know, an imperialist mythology. 
right? And that it, it is used to underwrite, uh, you know, violence, colonization, uh, you know, white supremacy, all of these things. He, whether he knew that when he headed west in uh, the early 1860s or not, he certainly came to know, know it by the time that he was writing Roughing It in 1870. And it, it, that appears in all sorts of places across the book where he, he describes the way in which he, you know, writers and journalists were often encouraged to uh, sort of if not invent, certainly exaggerate the number of hostile, uh, you know, confrontations there were between settlers and Indians, right? Uh, and so there, there are all sorts of times where he sort of points out the myth of the frontier, the myth of the settler, right? That that America was in in, in the process of making for very, you know, very obvious reasons, right? To to justify the taking of land. Uh, and so he's he's aware of that and he's willing to sort of demonstrate it in a way I think few other writers of his era are. Let's uh, let's pivot to talk about um, influence and in artistic communities. Um, mm -hmm. So as we know, you know, artists don't exist in a vacuum. I think we tend to think that way, especially when we're glorifying geniuses or something or mm -hmm. what we call genius, um, you know, when you talk yeah. about someone like Mozart, you you and you talk about Mozart's operas, for example, they just stand alone. But if you don't understand the history of Italian opera and all the influences that it, you know came to shape how Mozart looked at opera and how it created opera, you, you know it 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 just paints a different picture that we ex all exist in communities and have influences. And certainly, Mark Twain had many influences. I want to focus on one, which is Bret Hart. Um, can you talk a little bit about how Bret Hart influenced uh, Twain's writing career and how you see the different influences that he experienced in California shaping his writing? Absolutely. I mean, I'll first just say that that idea of a sort of dependence for the production of art upon its context and sort of the collective energies of community that is something that Twain, you know, came to believe or recognize about himself. And one of the very last things he wrote, something called "What Is Man," he talks about the the force of association and and about the you know he believes that no success is individual, right? But it is always created by the the happenstance of community of where you are born, where you find yourself, and indeed one of the only things somebody can do to escape sort of a fatalistic um you know interaction with the world according to twain is to move around right that's one of the only things that we have control over is to if we know we are in a corrosive environment we have the opportunity to change that right but but you are always going to adapt to your associations right and so clearly that was to some extent true for twain in uh, in, in california and in the west and and absolutely you know, Bret Hart and him form a kind of bond during this time. One that sometimes is characterized as Hart being a mentor, but I think is is more collaborative. They are very, you know, uh, Hart's actually I think a year younger than Sam Clemens is, and so they, you know, they are very much 
peers. They, they come from somewhat similar backgrounds. They certainly have a, a lot of shared sort of political leanings. They are, uh, you know, bohemian. Uh, they are also very dedicated to becoming craftsmen uh, in their, their chosen profession. And so I think they have a, a great deal in common and a, a lot of mutual benefit for them during this period. Hart was it definitely was more established he had an edit had a couple of different editorial positions in the San Francisco papers and so was able to sort of shuffle work uh, Twain's way and thus you know help him to develop a more stable relationship to the periodicals in San Francisco once he migrated there um, and absolutely they were they were both deeply, involved and embedded and dedicated to this sort of emerging form of bohemian journalism that I was talking about earlier, right? And that that included a, a real affection for and a desire to reduce to reproduce the lives of blue blue collar workers um, uh, and also this is early on in Twain's experiments with dialect it's something that that Bret Hart is also doing right that the that the language of the worker right the language of the migrant or the immigrant uh, the language of somebody who might be illiterate, is not deemed lesser in their work necessarily, right? And so dialect literature is definitely something that's part of this Bohemian tradition that will become, particularly after the war, increasingly a part of the American literary landscape. And, and they're both very much a part of, of making it such. Do you think, because uh, we're talking about influence here, mm -hmm. um, do you think his time working with Hart uh, represented a pivot for him? Or was it more that um, it fostered something that was already growing in, in Twain and in his work? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't tend towards the idea that Hart sort of, you know, changed the course of Twain's career in terms of, you know, of sort of mentorship. Right. I think that a lot of the things that he was doing, you know, before he met Hart in Virginia City and even further back, um, you know, seem in keeping with the trajectory he would take. But certainly when Hart amplified. Right. And Hart was one of the, who encouraged him, as few other sort of his compatriots and editors had to lean into the things that made him unusual. Um, uh, you know, whether that was his, you know, cynical forms of humor, that whether that was sort of the, the burlesque characters or the unreliable narrators, a lot of the stuff that other editors uh, were maybe asking him to tamp down, to tone down, right? Hart wanted him to lean further into. And that's how we, I think, eventually get things like uh, Jim Smiley's Jumping Frog, right? That the Twain is 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 recognizing that there there may be more of an appetite for these kinds of stories uh, than uh, you know than some people would have expected uh, and part and among the people who are who are sort of nudging him in that direction is undoubtedly Bret Hart, Artemis Ward, etc. Uh, this larger community of Western humorists, Bohemian writers, yeah.
Well, you brought it up and I was about to go there. Let's talk about jumping frogs. And for anyone that's listening, I would encourage you to both read the story, which I'll have a link to the, I, I guess it's Project Gutenberg free copy. And I think you can get a free copy on Amazon, an ebook or whatever. Oh, but um, yeah. but uh, I would encourage you to pair that with actually watching, uh, there's a show on Netflix that captures the competition uh, mm -hmm. today. Um, I've seen it, yeah. The jumping frog competition, and it's uh, it's worth seeing because if you've never been to Calaveras County, uh, that part of California, um, it can it can be hard to picture sometimes because it is an interesting part of California that um, people don't know about, maybe that live outside of the state or haven't uh, really traveled much. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about the background of that story? Give us a little overview of the story, and then talk about uh, why it's important in Twain's career. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the background is actually Twain was going through a very dark phase in his career, uh, bordering on suicidal. Uh, he was having a, a, you know, a pretty serious feud with the San Francisco Police Department. Uh, and he had lost some of his most stable work. And he leaves San Francisco briefly uh, to journey to a, a mining encampment. And uh, essentially, maybe he was even sort of on the run, but he definitely needed an opportunity to refresh and get out of an environment that was potentially toxic for him. So he goes to this cabin in Calaveras County, and he uh, he's sort of trading stories with the miners uh, and other ne'er-do-wells who are sort of passing through this rural part of California. Uh, and one of the stories, at least as the you know the legend goes, is about this uh, this frog race, right? Frog jumping contest uh, and a, uh, you know, a frog Daniel Webster that was reputed to be the best. And I, I'm not going to sort of, I can't possibly reproduce the story because Absolutely. the stories, you know, telling the plot of the story doesn't do it justice in any way. It's the way in which the story is told, which is exemplary of the kind of burlesque style that Twain would become initially famous for. That is, I, you know, a strange, unreliable narrator who has a sort of funny disposition, maybe a funny way of talking, uh, who is then discoursing about a set of events that he maybe doesn't even fully understand. And his lack of understanding is a, is a source of humor. And oftentimes the story doesn't go in expected ways, or maybe doesn't seem to go anywhere at all, right? And that's sort of the the you know the burlesque style that Twain specializes in, and this is, this is the you know the viral story that sets his career in motion, right? That he he doesn't make barely any money for this story, but he sends it off to his friend in New York. Uh, who gets it into one of the major New York newspapers. And I think we have a tendency now to assume that sort of virality and memification is something that's uh, native to the digital era. And certainly in some ways it is, right? But Jumping Frog was a, was a viral story, right? It, it, it was published in a New York newspaper. Soon thereafter, it was published in a San Francisco paper. And from there, over the course of several weeks, 
weeks, it sort of found its way into newspapers all over the nation, right? And made Twain, if not a, you know, a household name yet, certainly sort of raised his profile to a national one, as opposed to being merely a local one. Uh, and that was through the sort of newspaper rent reprinting, newspaper circulation, uh, that was the primary, the dominant medium of that time. And, and so me for many of the readers who would become sort of Twain fans in his time, they were likely to have first become aware of him through this story that sort of permeated the newspaper networks of the you know the mid 1860s i think it's um we often forget that uh, a lot of great literature was serialized in newspapers and uh i think we kind of you know uh project back onto the past this idea that, of people going to bookstores to buy books or something but uh, oftentimes people uh read their literature uh, through a newspaper medium. Um, Absolutely. And I'm, I'm thinking about how this story would have been received um, and if it existed within this kind of uh, Western literature context. So um, can you talk a little bit about the context in which this story, did it come out of left field or was this part of a, a genre of uh, these weird stories from the West that uh, were capturing people's imaginations? Absolutely, yeah. There was there was absolutely a sort of fetishization of Western culture for the Eastern newspaper uh, audience, and so absolutely, Twain's story and the ways in which it, this it had this very. Uh, a peculiar narrator uh, who, whose maybe intelligence was questioned at several, that would have really appealed to, again, this mythology of who was going West and what they were doing out there. And certainly they were producing wealth for the nation, right? But it took a certain kind of personality to be drawn to the West. And, and Twain's work certain, certainly played into that in, in interesting and slightly different ways. And to speak to your point about the about newspaper literature, right? Absolutely. I mean, the, you know, Twain is born in 1835, which is really the birth of the penny press, and uh, with the New York Herald being uh, being launched that year, and and he will become part of that, uh, you know, that movement in, that happens in these essentially 25 or so years before the outbreak of the Civil War is that we go from having a few uh, newspapers that are largely, you know, maybe a few hundred newspapers that are largely concentrated on the eastern seaboard to having like four or 5,000 newspapers spread all over the country. And even small towns have, you know, sometimes two or three publications. A, a city like San Francisco has dozens, right? uh, oftentimes to specific political niches, sometimes to specific commercial niches or professional niches. Right? But there's all this periodicals. And a lot of them are only the, the reason it's called a penny press is a lot of these uh, newspapers are sold for a cent. And so even working class people can afford to subscribe or at least to, with some regularity buy issues of these penny press newspapers. And in all likelihood, as you say, that might be the only 
not only literature, but that might be the only media that they are interacting with, right? That reading this penny paper a few times a week might be the only way that they're getting any news, any entertainment, any culture, right? Other than what they experience in their work life and in their, uh, you know, with their neighbors and their communities, right? And so there is, uh, you know, there's, and, and honestly, like, literacy takes off in the United States because of this, right? Because of the penny press revolution, we go from being, you know, a relatively illiterate society to being more literate than almost any country in Europe. And that takes only a matter of decades. And it's all because of the sort of the, you know, the attractiveness of the virality, the excitement around newspaper culture. Uh, and obviously, Twain's riding the wave of that as one of its first major celebrities. Yeah, let's let's talk about his work with newspapers. You've already, we've, I mean, we've been talking about journalism this whole time because that's the background to all of this. Uh, but can you talk about? Um, I'm not even exactly sure how many newspapers he worked for, um, but uh, can you talk about uh, the kinds of stories? And I think what people tend to associate with this period of time. Um, in history, and this is maybe a little bit before, but they tend to associate kind of the muckracking uh, movement within newspapers. And I, I think Twain precedes that uh, by a, a little mm -hmm. bit, because um, I think, I mean, I tend to associate Jacob Rees with that, with that movement, yeah. and that's, that comes a little later. Um, Absolutely. And so can you talk about his uh, time spent at newspapers and how you look at that work in the bibliography of Twain? What, what's, what's its place? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in many ways, Twain's first profession is at a, as a printer's apprentice. Before he goes on, you know, before he comes a steamboat captain or anything, he's setting type in presses, uh, you know, really across uh, the East, uh, but also, but, you know, we'll focus in on, uh, on St. Louis. Um, and so among the things that he would be setting type for would be newspapers. And he certainly is a, you know, a, a very voracious newspaper and literature consumer from a very early age, right? just a voracious reader. Right? Uh, and so that's a, that's a skill that he develops very early in life as a teenager even. And it's one that is wildly marketable in the context of mid 19th century US. Like I said, there's this explosion of newspapers and other forms of print, oftentimes commercial print in the mid 20th century or the mid 19th century. And so anywhere he goes, one of the things he can rely upon, whether it's the work he really wants or not, he can always rely upon getting pretty good paying work as a printer or as an editor or as a reporter, you know, doing all the work that he is capable of doing because of his familiarity with the printing press um, and because of his literacy, et cetera. And so absolutely, you know, he, he never really gets too far away from the newspaper trade, even though he imagines himself as a career steamboat pilot for a brief period of time. But once he goes out West, and especially once he realizes that mining is probably not going to be a, a source of reliable 
uh, you know, salary for him and may not be something he has a particular acumen for, right? He's, he's always turning to newspapers, to uh, printing offices. And he, the first major job that he lands, well, the first major job he lands is with the Virginia City Territorial Enterprise. And then when he moves to San Francisco, he gets a, a job as a sort of beat reporter for the Daily Morning Call. Uh, and he'll he'll only spend less than a year there, but he you know he's doing what we think of as this sort of shoe leather reporting, right? He is walking all over the city, going to theaters, going to marketplaces, going to the courts, going to you know these various various potential sources of news, and cultivating relationships, building sources, having conversations, observing what's going on, right? Really learning the sort of conventional newspaper reporters trade. Uh, and he will be able to trade upon that continuously, really for the rest of his life. He never ceases to publish in periodicals, although after 1867, it's never what his, you know, his primary source of uh, income either, right? But he, you know, he has relationships with dozens of papers, and, and during, the, particularly during the time in San Francisco, after he leaves the call, one of the things he realizes is that this this is a you know that he is actually a um, you know a resource that is in demand from these papers right that he his material is attractive to readers and so as a freelancer he can sort of write his own ticket not necessarily that he can get really well paid but there will always be a demand for his work and so he can write about whatever he wants to write about and that's really a turning point in Twain's career is the recognition that the, that there is an audience demand for my work and so I have a certain I can leverage a certain amount of control over what I want to write for whom I want to write it where I want it to be published and which audience I'm trying to reach and what I'm trying to do for and to that audience and that is a you know that's the kind of power that a creative person has specifically in a, a marketplace that is expanding right to think about the analogy now with things like the streaming wars and the uh you know the and the expansion of social media things like that and podcasts right? yeah <laughs> and podcasts right that there is exactly right that there is a space for new voices for creative people to sort of do what they want and if they can identify the demand for it they have a great deal of control that maybe they wouldn't other other wouldn't have had in sort of more concentrated media environments like the one that comes a little later in Twain's career. Um, let's let's pivot to talking a little bit about legacy. Um, you know, I think a lot of people try to claim Twain, um, and many don't know that uh, some of his books that often uh, kind of give people a picture of the South were written in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, you know, very much in the North. Um, and uh, it's it's hard to place him because he does move quite a bit in his lifetime and, yeah. you know, spending years in Europe and traveling the world and living in the North, living in the South, living on the Mississippi, living in the West. Um, but let me let me push you and say, let's make for me the strongest case that at his core Twain is a western writer if you had to defend <laughs> that proposition you have uh, to defend maybe just that for, proposition 
which as, as, as the activity. resident scholar at the Center for Mark Twain's Studies in Elmira, New York, I am not prone necessarily <laughs> to do, but it, what's but the best think, case? For I that do think there's a compelling case to make that this is, I mean, this is where Mark Twain is born, right? He's Sam Clemens until he gets to the West, right? And so the figure of Mark Twain, right? The, the, the personality, the reputation, the person he'll be playing on the stage for the rest of his life, that particular, uh, you know, that particular character is born in the West, right? In Virginia City, in San Francisco. And even as that character shifts and change and modulates and certainly becomes more of a Yankee as he gets later in his career, it will never completely abandon the sort of storytelling style and the storytelling techniques that he learned in those mining camps, right? And he's, he's very much a fusion of these places, right? That his, you know, the drawl that he leans into on stage by all accounts is obviously a Southern trope, right? Uh, and the, the sort of playfulness with imitation, the playfulness with narration, those are Western tropes, right? Uh, and the sort of political incendiariness, right? That is something that he is going to learn after he gets to the sort of abolitionist communities of the Northeast, right? So he's going to take from all of these places in various ways. But that character, right, that name, Right. Even though it's a reference to his steamboat piloting, right, that name, that character is born in the West and his first performance is in San Francisco. Right. Uh, and that and so absolutely a case can be made that if there isn't this thirst for Western humor, if there isn't this call to go West, young man, right, that Twain, you know, listen, you know, sort of follows to some extent that we may not get the the author of Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer, even though those, you know, those books are written, you know, more than a decade later. Right? He, he has to become the Western humorist, right? the wild humorist of the Pacific Slope before he can become right, the, you know, the writer of, of idols and the, uh, you know, the most famous man on earth, as he would be called by the end of his life. And I think a lot of people come to California to experiment and, you know, maybe it's the lack of uh, kind of this uh, social etiquette that, uh, the East has this kind of formality, uh, kind of a pecking order uh, where you work your way up a specific ladder with, through specific mm -hmm. doorways um, with specific doorkeepers saying yes or no. Mm -hmm. Maybe that is the strength of, of the West, and um, which is something that I would say is distinctive about California. Um, and maybe that, maybe that left an imprint. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot to be said about that. I mean, as you know, it leads to a certain kind of lawlessness as well, right? That can that can often reward people who already have power, who already have wealth, or who are willing to uh, you know to use their violence, use whatever uh, to keep it, right? That was certainly characteristic of San Francisco in the time that Twain was there as well. But I, I think you mentioned on a previous episode, right? This is a city that's growing in this sort of incredibly rapid, unchaotic way. 
Um, and there's no doubt that that appealed to Twain's temperament in his you know 20s and 30s, right? As a as a relatively young man, right? That this sort of excitement of a place that was not that did not have a sort of enshrined and entitled conventions, but rather was sort of making itself up as he was, undoubtedly that was very appealing. And, and I, I agree that there, while there were still certain kinds of gatekeepers, there was the, the potential to sort of find a way around and a way through for somebody who was as creative and, and also maybe as sort of morally relativist as Twain was. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's close by talking about books, which is my favorite thing to do. Absolutely. Um, so I want to kind of uh, do two different things here. I want to start uh, with some biography recommendations, mm -hmm. um, because I know that there's been a quite a few written. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes, you know, and I was recently thinking about this because I, uh, I just bought the new biography of, uh, Lee that just came out by, uh, Alan, whose last name I'm forgetting. Um, and so I kind of went on a spiral of, uh, the different bio because you know there's mm -hmm. just been so many and many yeah. are hagiographic and kind of bad mm -hmm. and then there's some yep. that are just way too long um, yeah. and so you can you you sometimes I I feel like uh, the average reader just needs some help um, yes. and it you, you know you can get you can get these kind of newspaper columnists that or mm -hmm. you know uh, book reviewers that try to but it's they just don't have the background to really discern, you know, what is a good biography of someone. Um, so let's start with that. And then uh, secondarily, I want to talk about uh, kind of your favorite uh, Twain works. And, uh, you know, there's some stuff that he's written that people might be less familiar with that you could yeah. push them in the direction of. Absolutely. So for biographies, the if you're looking for a single volume, that takes you sort of from the beginning of Twain's life all the way to the end and does so, you know, in a, you know, three or 400 pages, something relatively digestible. I think Ron Powers, Mark Twain is the, the place that I would go. Um, it's it certainly, there's going to be, I, I think that he doesn't spend a much as much time on the, the final 15 years as perhaps I would like. He may be, he is himself a Missourian and he maybe paints Twain in a Missourian as a Missourian to an extent that somebody from California or from somebody from Hartford might, uh, you know, uh, quibble with a little bit. But if I'm going to say, you know, you want you want a biography of Twain, I want to get as much information about his life as possible in it from a single source. That's the first place I would go. If you are looking specifically to concentrate on the period that we've been talking about, and you want a, a you know, a pure biography, then there's a new uh, three volume biography by Gary Scharnhorst. Uh, and the first volume concentrates on the, you know, his, his early period through the time in California up until this sort of early celebrity. It'll go into a lot more detail around that uh, that period. And, and there's stuff in there about the time in Virginia, Sanary, in Virginia City in San Francisco that I don't think has appeared in any other biography. So there's going to, you know, if that's the period you're interested in, that's where I would go, right? For a more sort of San Francisco specific 
There's a book by uh, Ben Tarnoff called The Bohemians. That it, it, Twain is definitely at the center, but it's talking about this whole community of writers that I've referred to uh, as sort of the Bohemians or the San Francisco journalists, right? That this, you know, and so he, he's gonna grapple with Hart and other uh, literary figures from that time period as well. So those would be the three that I think would, you know, I would maybe recommend first. And then for that second question, like, you know, the, so for me, uh, I have, as I've gotten further and further into my, uh, you know, my life with Twain, uh, the, the later works have increasingly appealed to me. And part of that is aging myself. Part of that is the way that Twain's politics change as he gets later in life. But the three things that I sort of come back to over and over again recently is are all, you know, are all relatively short works. Uh, one is a sort of philosophical dialogue called What is Man, which I referred to earlier. Uh, the other is a, a kind of satire uh, called Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven. It's a novella length, and it's supposedly based on an incredibly popular um, book from the mid-19th century called The Gates Ajar, which was supposedly about what happens when you get to heaven. Uh, and Twain sort of takes that idea, and as you might expect, he puts some twists on it. And specifically, you know, he, you know, Captain Stormfield is sort of modeled on Twain himself, but a kind of Southern gentleman version of Twain, who arrives in heaven and is quite surprised to find that there's not so many white people there among other things, right? <laughs> so, there, you know, I, I've, I've become increasingly attracted to, it's a very funny, very weird uh, kind of, you know, fantasy uh, novella, satirical fantasy novella. And then uh, the final thing that I highly recommend if you haven't read it is The Diaries of Adam and Eve. Uh, where he sort of takes on the characters from, uh, the, you know, the garden and puts them into a kind of romantic comedy scenarios while also using it as a way to sort of think about marriage, think about relationships, and also to, you know, quibble with the, the word. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he's someone that just keeps giving. So if you want to, yes. if you want to spend your life uh, yes. with with a writer, you can really spend it with Twain, um, if Absolutely. you so choose. But as you can see by the books behind me, you know, I, I, you, you, it, it's hard. It's hard. You know, it's hard, and that's mm -hmm. why we have recommendations because yeah. uh, not all of us you know, work at the centers for Mark Twain studies, you know, we have to, we have, we have other things going on and we need your help to help us yeah. discern uh, which are well, the best books to read. And I, I will say, if, you know, if you asked me that question three years ago, I probably would have given you three different books and three years from now I might again, but to your point, Twain has this enormous, massive corpus of work that is sort of, you know, reliably, there's still stuff that I haven't read, it's part of my job you know it's just so it's there's so much out there and so there's some of his short stories I haven't gotten to I can tell you I haven't read every page of that three volume autobiography I've read a lot of it right but not every page of it and so there you know there are 
he is part of the the joy of being a Twain scholar is knowing not only that there's an enormous amount of material to get through over the course of your career, but you're going to keep going back to stuff and see it differently each time. Right. I read Adventures of Huckleberry Finn with a class a few weeks ago, and I saw things in it that I hadn't seen before, even though I've read it dozens of times. And so he he's one of those authors, undoubtedly. Yeah. And it's, it's a reminder with literature that as the world changes, we change and then mm-hmm. we change how we read things. And um, there is, there is no solitary reader in the text. It's always a process yeah. of change. Um, Absolutely. You read, you listen so, to podcasts like this, you, you know, you get in, engaged in history and you will see things in the literature that you, you know, read before that, that weren't there. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's finish by talking about uh, the uh, center, uh, the center for Mark Twain studies, and then also talking about, uh, you know, your, your scholarship and what you're focused on right now. I know uh, when you're on staff at somewhere like a center, a lot of your stuff can be administrative, but Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to share a little bit about the center, but also uh, what you're interested in these days. All right. So the the Center for Mark Twain Studies is dedicated to fostering scholarship on Mark Twain at all levels. And so that that does literally mean from primary education all the way up to professional historians, professors, so on and so forth. And we do that in a a range of ways that uh, at the center of which is a set of fellowships that we give every year. The deadline is actually coming up on November 30th. And so we'll have 10 scholars who come to Elmira uh, to to do work to uh, you know to use our archives uh, to extend their works in progress over it, and we we do those every year. We also have a website marktwainstudies.org which has a whole host of resources for students, for teachers, for scholars, for hobbyists, for collectors, so on and so forth. All sorts of material constantly updating. We have a podcast called The American Vandal, named after Twain's first uh, nationwide lecture tour, uh, where we're going to have conversations with a wide variety of scholars, not always who consider themselves Twain scholars, but whose work intersects with things that Twain did, his life, his work, his legacy in some sort of subtle way. I am currently working on a couple of different projects. One, I published something earlier this year that was about uh, Dave Chappelle, and it's called The Political Economy of Dave Chappelle's Redemption Songs. It was in LA Review of Books in February, and it was, uh, you know, trying to intersect uh, what Chappelle, how the, the sort of course of Chappelle's career at the outset of the digital era with the course of Twain's career at the outset of the print era. Uh, And I'm trying to sort of build upon that in thinking about how do we make these analogies between the media environment of Twain's time and the media environment of our own time. Um, And another sort of extension of that project that I'm sort of most directly invested in right now is Twain's uh, sort of interest in police abolition 
right, or police reform, uh, something that he got into during his time in San Francisco and during this, you know, intense feud with the San Francisco police. Uh, I did a podcast about that last year, but I, I'm working on writing something that's more extensive about it and connects him with a set of other figures from this era who were all recognizing that the, the institutions of policing in America were deeply connected to the to uh, to you know racism of various types. Certainly, uh, to the institution of slavery in the South, it was very you know police departments that oftentimes emerged directly from the desire to control the black populations of the South, but in San Francisco. It was actually anti-Asian racism that often fueled the erection of police departments, and so there's, uh, you know, that that's sort of the the project that I'm working on right now. Yeah, and it's um, I I want to close too by uh, mentioning we're recording this the week of Thanksgiving, and uh, uh, Twain had some interesting thoughts about. Uh, the holiday of Thanksgiving. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Uh, he talks in his autobiography about, uh, you know, the reason for Thanksgiving um, has been exterminated um, yep. and that it's a holiday that we keep celebrating every year. Uh, but the things the we're celebration thankful for of genocide. are genocide. Yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. He he says that in pretty, in pretty much no uncertain terms. Uh, and it, it is a, it's a, it's a difficult thing to grapple with, you know, for all, you know, for all the good things we might make of this festival. He, he recognizes early on that it is a, you know, it is a kind of homage to a people that we have eradicated. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, it's just a, a Twain can be a helpful reminder of these uh, contradictions that we live with. Mm-hmm. Um, and the goal here is not to be, you know, uh, a little gloomy this week, but just to set uh, what we're all going to do on Thursday in some context mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, just remembering that as you adjust your belt size um, is is maybe not a political action, but it's an important thing to at least be cognizant of. Um, and uh, Twain is there to remind us of those uncomfortable things. So um, with that, uh, I appreciate you coming on and talking with me. This has been a lot of fun. And I, I know the people listening are going to get a lot out of this conversation. I appreciate it, Jordan. I, I've had a great time. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Matt Siebold. As always, you can support this podcast by either leaving us a rating and review or by supporting us financially at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time. Thank you.